Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are back today with Dr. Catherine Sharp Landeck of Texas Women's University, who has been studying the Women Air Force Service Pilots, or WASP, of World War II for the last 20 years. These were women who flew military aircraft all over the United States during World War II, doing everything from ferrying aircraft and people from one place to another to towing uh, targets to be used for live ammunition practice. This program was both an experiment to see what women could handle and an effort to free up male pilots for the war. Kate really graciously agreed to sit down to talk to me about the WASP, their history, their work, and their legacy, and she had such marvelous things to say that we are airing the interview in two parts. Today is the second part. And this is going to start by talking about what the duties of the women that were part of the WASP program were during the war and how they evolved. And it may surprise you to learn which of them were more dangerous than others. Just this first answer that uh, Kate gives Tracy is packed with information on the WASP and the aircraft they flew and what it really took to fly them. So a lot of the first duties that were assigned to the WASP were basically pretty basic things. Like, let's, let's, we need to move the aircraft from where they were built to where they need to go. Or we need to move the chaplain from this uh, base to this base to do Sunday service. Like, just basically moving people and equipment from one place to another so that the male pilots could be freed up for more uh, intense combat duties. But over the time that the program was going on, women started doing things like towing targets to be shot at with live ammunition. (laughs) Or Paul Tibbetts, who would later go on to pilot the Enola Gay, actually recruited two wasps to demonstrate the B-29 bomber, which was prone to catching on fire if it was not, if it didn't take off properly. And and so the men were kind of scared to fly it. Uh, And so... Paul Tibbetts recruited these two wasps to demonstrate it for the men, sort of to circle back to what you had said previously about the airplane. So easy, even a woman can fly it. So to me, it's a startlingly short amount of time between we are basically going to use women to to move people and stuff around to we're going to use women to literally tow targets to be shot at. How did that evolution actually take place to go from being really reluctant to have women flying at all and doing extremely basic stuff to being shot at. Well, and I, I think this is good. And, and um, I think there's a couple of things here. First, it's important to recognize that the work of ferrying the planes was actually um, in some ways more dangerous than the work of towing the targets and being shot at. It's hard to, to think in those terms, right? The, the firing with live ammunition. It always sounds worse, <laughs> but just a couple of things. So first, the, the ferrying jobs. The women were brought in because we needed ferry pilots. That was that was the part of the Army Air Forces that was the most desperate um, and needed pilots the most because we were building hundreds of thousands of airplanes at factories, uh, factories in California, factories in Detroit, factories in, uh, you know, Omaha, and, in, and, you know, all over the country we're building these planes. And they have to get to training bases all across the country for pilots to learn to fly. And then the the bigger planes, the, the bombers and the pursuit aircraft, have to be flown 
to different coasts, right? I mean, a lot of the pursuits were built in Long Beach, California, and we were fighting a war in Europe. You know, so they had to be flown all the way across the country. And I think it's important to think, take yourself back and put yourself into the reality of navigation in the 1940s. They don't have GPSs on board, right? They have very limited navigation and they have to, these these pursuit planes especially, are single pilot planes. So you're in this plane alone and you're flying this plane over mountains uh, and across the country uh, with very limited navigation. So it's much of it's seat of your pants flying, uh, getting from point A to point B, finding the proper airfields to land at, to get fuel, because uh, that only lasts so long. And, and it's very independent work. It's very, you know, here's the airplane. Go fly it. Uh, many of these uh, airplanes, the ferry pilots, men and women, right, because remember there are men doing these jobs too, but these ferry pilots, they would be the first one to fly an airplane, right? They would, it would literally roll off the end of the assembly line and the pilot would be handed the keys basically and told, here you go. Uh, so they're, they're test flying these brand new airplanes and hoping Rosa the Riveter had really riveted it right. So th- this is important flying that had to be done and, and it's dangerous uh, and, and takes a lot of independent thinking and, and skills. Uh, but then you're quite right that the job of the women ex- expands because the, the Air, Army Air Forces wanted to see what women could do. Okay, well, women are good at ferry pilots. And, and again, they had started with just light trainer airplanes, little Piper Cubs and things like that. Uh, and then were put into the P-51s and P-38s and these really high horsepower, you know, the the most uh, sophisticated airplanes of the day very quickly because they proved themselves. Um, but the Army Air Forces said, well, let's see what else women could do. And Jacqueline Cochran was a, a big push of that. Uh, so they, one of the big jobs that needed to be done was you have to train men to fire weapons at moving planes, right? Whether it's ground gunners or uh, gunners on bombers, right? If you're on a B-17, you've got to shoot at the enemy plane out the side of out of the side of your B-17. You've got to learn how to do that. You can't take a 19-year-old boy and expect him to figure that out on the job, right? Uh, so you take women and and have them fly their planes uh, along a, a route, and you have the gunners on the ground, you know, firing at the banner and and um, a way, to, a way to think of the tow targets is if you've ever been to the beach and you see the plane flying down the beach with the banner behind it or to a sporting event or something and they've got their advertisement, vote for so-and-so, eat so-and-so's pizza, whatever, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, and and uh, except the targets were much longer um, and, and, uh, and yeah, they, they shot with live ammunition because they've got to figure out how to really use the guns they would often have the ammunition color coded so they could figure out which which gunner was shooting which which bullets. Um, but this was very mundane flying. Uh, it was dangerous because you're being shot at. Um, it was dangerous because you're flying slowly, oftentimes. Uh, but it was very boring flying. It was it was basically flying up and down and you know up and then turning around and flying back down and listening on the radio and doing the same thing every day. Um, and, and you have to be precise and you have to, you know, do what 
what has to be done, but it's not exotic flying. Um, and so the Air, Army Air Forces were kind of excited to have women do this job because the men hated it because it was so boring. Um, and the women were tended to be more patient, more happy to be flying anything. Uh, so, so that was an evolution to expand to that. And then, yeah, it, it expands to all these different jobs to test flying planes after they've been, um, you know, worked on or had a little crash, uh, flying, you know, personnel from place to place, doing all these different jobs. And basically this was just an expansion of the women to see what they could do. And, and they, they took it. We actually have a wasp who flew the first American jet. You know, they, well, could she do that? Oh, look, she can. Uh, we had women flying um, remote control aircraft, you know, so, you know, essentially some of the first drones, and they were all top secret, uh, flying some of those uh, where they'd be in the remote aircraft with somebody behind them in another plane flying that plane. Uh, but, but they didn't want the plane to crash, so if the person messed up, the women in the drone airplane could could take over the controls, you know, so they're doing all these different jobs. And really, uh, Jacqueline Cochran has a phrase for it that I just, I just love. She, she said that the wasps do all the aerial dishwashing, right? All the aerial dishwashing jobs that, that, uh, it's the jobs that nobody wants, but everybody, it has to be done, right? The jobs that, that nobody wants to do, but that have to be done, just like doing the dishes at home. And, you know, of course she, she domesticates the work that they're doing. I know they're just they're just dishwashing, right? They're not threatening anybody flying these fancy military planes. They're just they're just doing the dishwashing, the aerial dishwashing jobs, and and uh, you know it's uh, it's interesting the terms that she used to justify the work that women were doing. But again, you know, after the war, we have all these really extensive reports of the jobs that the women did and the the success that they had. They they did well at all the jobs they were asked to do. Uh, the only one that was questionable was flying a glider, right? They had these big gliders that they used in World War II, and the aircraft would tow the glider, and the women weren't quite strong enough for that. So that's the only job that they, they said, well, let's not have them do that. Uh, but, but everything else, these were all jobs that had to be done. So you have 1,102 women who are out there and who are doing jobs that if they hadn't been doing them, 1,102 men would have had to do them because they were jobs that had to be done. And um, I think part of this is it starts with we don't know where the war is going to go. What's going to happen in this war? What jobs are women going to have to do? What is our our pool of of potential pilots here? Uh, And then as the war progresses, they wanted to have final numbers on these uh, experiments, basically, and they they saw the Cold War coming. You know, it's like, well, if we have another war, what can women do? Uh, so it really, uh, they had women doing all these jobs because these jobs were all there to be done. Um, and they kept trying different things. But they were giving the women, they were they were doing a, a good work. They were flying and, and uh their accident rates were comparable with men doing the same jobs. Their, uh, you know, delivery rates on the the fairing of the aircraft was in some cases better. It just, you know, on some bases, the commanders preferred the women 
because they they wanted to fly. Uh, so I think it, it's it's interesting how their role ex- expanded, uh, and it's you know you have to keep in mind that they were considered an experiment, and if you have an experiment, you try as many things as you can. Man, there was so much information in the answer to that question. Number one, I had no idea that ferrying a new plane from the factory to an airfield could in some ways be a lot more dangerous than towing targets for live ammo practice. That still seems completely counterintuitive to me, even having been explained. I understand now rationally (laughs) why it's so much more dangerous. But in my head, it's still way more dangerous to be shot at than just to fly a plane. Uh, Number two... I had no idea until talking to Kate about this that part of the mindset behind this whole program was like, what if there's another war? What all are we going to need women to already know how to do? And what are we going to need to have demonstrated that that women can handle? That, to me, was bleak and fascinating. Uh, and coming up, Tracy's interview with Kate gets into some more specific Uh, cases of women that were part of this program. But before we do that, we're going to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. Next up, we are going to talk about one wasp in particular. He was one of two Chinese-American women who served with the Women Air Force Service Pilots. As I started researching the wasp. Uh, I like I know that the the United States military wasn't integrated until 1948, which was after the wasp were disbanded. So I assumed that only white women were in the wasp. That the, but then I found a photo of Hazel Ying Lee, who was a Chinese American woman from Oregon, who was actually the last of the wasp to be killed in the line of duty. So it's clear that number one, it was not exclusively white women. Uh, but number two, is is this a story that do you know a lot about Hazel Ying Lee? Do you know, what can you share with us about her? Well, um, you're quite right that the wasps were, were white. Uh, there were, there were two exceptions, uh, Hazel Ah Ying Lee, uh, and then there was another Chinese American woman who is, uh, Maggie G. Uh, and she was out of California. She was in one of the later classes. Uh, and those were the, um, only two non-white women. In the group, uh, we know that several African American women who were qualified did apply uh, to the program, uh, and they were turned down uh, because they they were worried about desegregating the group, um, and that's a long long conversation to have. Um, but but uh, so when you're thinking about Chinese Americans. Hazel, especially, was very highly qualified. She had her pilot's license since 1935. Uh, she had gone to China uh, when Japan attacked China in the thir- 1930s to try to fly for the Chinese Air Force, uh, and they turned her down because she was a woman. So she actually had been flying uh, for some Chinese airlines. She was one of the very few Chinese uh, women pilots. Uh, and then she came back and, and her, uh, when the WASP program began, and was one of the earliest classes, and ferried pursuit aircraft. Uh, so it's important to remember that the United States was allied with China, and so having Chinese-American women in the program was good for appearances' sake, to a certain extent. Uh, and, and Hazel especially, she was a 
incredibly qualified uh, with, with all of her flight time. So I think that was a big part of it. And of course, she is uh, she's killed in November of 1944, quite tragically, uh, where that's one of those things that, you know, she's in a pursuit aircraft and another pursuit uh, is coming in. They're both landing. The control tower has some confusion and the one of the planes radios wasn't working. Uh, and so the the other pursuit plane landed on top of Hazel uh, and, and she was she was killed. Um, but but yeah, there were there were two Chinese uh, women. Uh, there's a story associated with Hazel that in one of her pursuit trips, the plane had had failed and she had to stop in a farmer's field. Right. She found a place to land when the engine quit and landed in a farmer's field. And the farmer, uh, when he saw her, came after her with a pitchfork uh, because he thought the Japanese were landing in his field. Uh, and she, you know, had to stand her ground and, you know, as she's running in the, around the plane, avoiding him, she's saying, no, I'm an American. And, I, you know, and, and finally ordered him to put the pitchfork down and he did. Uh, but but uh, that was a story that she loved to tell. And, and uh, she had a great sense of humor. So the stories go and, and uh, loved, loved telling that story about the man who thought she was Japanese. The last training class for the Watts graduated on December 7th of 1944. And then the program itself was disbanded on December the 20th, which was, I think, heartbreaking for a lot of the women who had been involved. They were basically all told to go home and a lot of cases told to go home basically at their own expense. Um, did any of that last lost class get to actually serve in the couple of weeks between when they graduated and when the program was disbanded? Yeah, yeah. So we call that the last, the the lost last class, uh, because they they went through training knowing they were going to be disbanded. Um, the announcement was made in October of 1944 that that they would be disbanded, but those who were already in training could finish. So the tradition was when a class graduated to be given some time off to go home uh, or, or or just rest uh, before they started their. Um, their active duty, uh, and this class didn't. They just went straight from graduation to different bases across the country. So they had uh, almost three weeks of, of service. It's not going to be the same and as you know, somebody who was in the third class. Uh, and the women of the last class are very humble about the work that they did compared to their sisters who had gone before them. Um, I want to take on another point that you said that when when they were disbanded on December 20th, the women are all across the country on these different bases, hundreds of different bases, and the Army Air Forces, Hap Arnold, the, the general at the time, said, you know, you can t- take a military plane nearby, right? You can catch a ride, basically, on a military plane if, if one's going near your home. One wasp actually got a ride home uh, with her fiance, right? He was a male pilot on the base and he flew her all the way home and met the family. Uh, other wasps, you know, one wasp, Shootsie Reynolds, she was out in, in uh, out west and was assigned uh, to ride along with uh, some men and they stopped in Las Vegas for fuel and all of a sudden the men said the planes didn't work and she'd have to find her way home to Pennsylvania from there. So she has this long story of you know, the, the coins that she had in her pocket and she and another girl, 
you know, trying to get home and calling her mother and saying, send us money, but then catching a ride and missing the money and, uh, you know, the, this long, arduous trip home. So this was this is one of the biggest problems with the WASP program because they were technically civilians, but they were living in the Army world. It, they each had a different experience. On some bases, the commanders were thrilled to have them and treated them like gold. And on others, they just didn't want to have anything to do with the women and, and were happy to see them go. So it was this very, um, very different experiences for all these women. Uh, everything from when they were killed, you know, some of the, you know, 38 wasps were killed. And some of those women, their bodies were escorted home and uh, they were given a, a proper funeral. Uh, others, the fellow wasp had to pass around a hat uh, to help send the body home. It just depended on the commander at that particular base. Um, so it was really, um, really different experiences for all the women. just talked about what happened after uh, women were killed in action, as well as what happened after the program was disbanded. We didn't really touch in our conversation on why the WASP were disbanded there. And it's kind of an important part of the story. So Holly and I are going to hit the highlights. Since its inception, the WASP program had operated under the belief that the WASP would eventually be militarized. A lot of the women's training was patterned off of military training, and the women who went through it thought that eventually they'd have military status, along with the benefits and veteran status that would come along with that. Instead, when House of Representatives Bill 4219 was introduced on February 17, 1944, to do exactly that, this subject became extremely contentious. By this point, the tide of the war had really turned. Male pilots who previously had just been desperately needed in Europe weren't anymore. Air Force training programs had been shuttered, and training programs for men had been cut way back when it came to the Air Force cadets. Suddenly, it didn't seem like women were relieving men for other wartime work in terms of the WASP program. It seemed like women were replacing men. The idea of women freeing up men to do more dangerous work was not a threatening one, but the idea that women were taking men's jobs absolutely was. The media and public opinion shifted against the WASP as well. On June 21st, 1944, House Bill 4219 was defeated. And instead, the announcement that came on August 5th, 1944, was that the training class that was currently in session would be the last one for the WASP. That class graduated on December 7th, and the program ended on December 20th. And now we are going to take another quick break for a sponsor word before we get into what happened after the WASP program was disbanded. get into what happened after the WASP program was over and why the idea of whether they should be recognized as military veterans continued to be controversial for decades after the end of World War II. So once the program was disbanded, 
it seems like the wasps were pretty quickly forgotten and forgotten so thoroughly that when the United States Air Force announced that it would be training 18 women as pilots in 1976, the announcement was worded as though this was the first time ever in history that a woman had flown U.S. military aircraft. Uh, what was it that led the wasp to return to the public eye after having been so thoroughly erased from it? I, I think that's a great question. Um, and they, I don't know if they were erased so much as they were just forgotten. Uh, you know, the war ends and they just don't, don't talk about their, their experiences. You know, all these combat pilots are coming home and, and they actually flew combat. And some women, when they started to tell their stories of their flying, were dismissed as, oh, yeah, right. You know, people just didn't believe them. So they didn't talk about it. And that entire generation tried to move on past the war. Uh, so skip forward to the 1960s, and these women are starting to hit retirement, uh, those who continued to serve in the military, uh, which, which some of them did. They, they joined the reserves. And they, they're facing retirement or from the civil service. And their points from their time in the WASP aren't counting towards their retirement. So, so you've got that practical reason of, hey, we, we need our time in the WASP to have been recognized so it can help us with the retirement. Um, but then you've got, even more importantly, these women are, are hitting their late 40s and their 50s, and they're realizing that they've been forgotten. And not only have they been forgotten, but those 38 wasps who died have been forgotten. And they, they just are hitting that point in life where, you know, their kids are grown and they're starting to reflect on their own experiences. And, and then, yeah, the, the military is coming out saying, oh, look at all of these women for the first time. And they're saying, wait a minute, we did this and it was important. Um, and, and so it's, it's timing uh, as much as anything else. But they, they just didn't want those 38 to sort of have lost their lives and nobody remember them. Uh, so that was really important to them. President Jimmy Carter did finally sign a law that gave the WASP veteran status in 1977. And I found that consistently described as being overstrong objections. What were the objections in place there? Well, there was a, the, the, Battle for recognition in the 1970s was controversial, and and some people say that Jimmy Carter opposed it. I haven't found hard evidence of that, so um, I, I'm not going to speak to that. Uh, but there were groups that opposed the women gaining veteran status um, who who argued that it would demean the word veteran if these women who had served as civilians were made veterans and... and uh, that they, they hadn't been military, so they shouldn't be veterans and different things like that. Um, and a lot of people were worried about how expensive it was going to be if you recognized the women as veterans. Uh, so they were given veteran status, but in a, in a limited way. They, you know, the GI Bill was gone by them, um, and they were just given recognition for purposes of the Veterans Administration. So it wouldn't be too expensive. Uh, you know, to, to take care of them. So Holly and I joined this podcast in 2013. And for the first two years after we did, we got constant requests from people to talk about the Soviet night bombing w regiment that became known as the Night Witches. Like it was the most requested thing 
we've ever had. And once we actually did that episode, nothing else has become nearly as as heavily requested. Uh, the Wasp, on the other hand, we've only gotten a few requests to talk about, and most of them have been in response to recent news about Arlington National Cemetery. Do you have any thoughts on why the Night Witches have become so much more famous in the United States than the Wasp, who actually have some pretty similar stories, aside from the fact that the Wasps were not flying in combat? Well, I think the the, the Soviet women are pretty amazing. Uh, you know, they they did fly combat. They did fight and die, and they did shoot down planes. And I think um, our modern times have women military aviators serving in combat. And so maybe that connection between, you know, we've got women who are in combat uh, ties directly to those Soviet women uh, who did it so long ago and under such horrible conditions. And the WASP are very humble. They they love these the Soviet women, they've had meetings. There was a group of wasps who went to Russia um, in, the, in the 1990s uh, and, and just admire them so much for the things that they did. And again, the wasps were very humble about their actions compared to the actions of the, the Soviet women. Um, you know, why people wouldn't ask for more information about the wasps, I don't know. But, but uh, you know, I, I, think, I think people keep forgetting them. You know, and and uh, and they didn't fly combat, uh, so so I don't I don't know I I can't speculate on why people wouldn't wouldn't ask about them, but but uh, you know we've we've gotten them a lot of publicity. They they we had the Rose Parade float in 2014, uh, got you know millions of people saw that, and, and of course they got the Congressional Gold Medal in 2010. We got a lot of great press coverage from that, so. Um, Maybe maybe people are learning about them, or they have a complicated story. I, I think it's been told quite simply, uh, quite quite beautifully, but but it really is a little more complicated than than it seems on the surface. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. So as I alluded to earlier, most of the requests that we've gotten recently have followed headlines about the wasp, whether. Uh, people who have passed away and served in the WASP, whether they can be uh, buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Can you catch us up on uh, on exactly what's going on with that, where that whole debate has come from? Well, the, the distinction about Arlington National Cemetery versus other veteran cemeteries is Arlington is run by the Army, uh, where other national, other national cemeteries, veteran cemeteries, are run by the Veterans Administration. So the Arlington National Cemetery, the Secretary of the Army has argued that, well, the WASPs aren't eligible for Arlington because the law that gave them veteran status, that recognized them as veterans, uh, 95-202, said that they were veterans for purposes of the Veterans Administration. So this is, this is quite the technicality. Um, they have been brought in. To Arlington, there are wasps at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, in 2002, the cemetery came out and said, not only should they be here, but they should get status uh, of honors. You know, they should get taps and they should get a flag and they should, you know, be treated treated in this way. Uh, so this is a reversal of what's what's been done for the last, you know, 10 years for sure, 15 years. Uh, but but uh, they've been eligible to be there and expecting to be there 
uh, for decades now. Um, so, you know, this has caused quite the uproar. There have been two wasps uh, who were turned down. Uh, one whose son fought very hard, Bruce Bizet, uh, who was just lovely and wanted to be there so badly. Um, and her son uh, just couldn't fight. It, it was it was too much of a fight. He tried very hard. Uh, and then Elaine Harmon, uh, whose daughters uh, and granddaughters uh, have picked up the fight for all of the wasps. Uh, and, and right now, uh, there's a bill before Congress, uh, both, both the House and the Senate, uh, to make the uh, wasps eligible, you know, to, to make them able to be in Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, and Representative Martha McSally, who was among the first female combat pilots in modern times, uh, she is leading that charge uh, to, to recognize these wasps. She's taken it very personally <laughs> that these women uh, have been essentially uninvited. We will be sure to update listeners when there is uh, news on that. Oh, good. As, as a last note before we wrap up, uh, I met you at the American Historical Association annual meeting earlier this year, and it was on a panel that you were on. Uh, about why historians should write op-eds and engage the media about history. And a lot of what you had to say really parallels a lot of what's on Holly's in my mind when we talk about things on the show sometimes. So I wondered if you could take a minute to just talk about why you think it's important for history, for historians to talk to the public about history. Well, I, uh, this is something that I'm fairly passionate about uh, because I believe that historians know things. <laughs> we we know stuff. We we spend a lot of our lives, all of our professional lives, learning about things and and making connections. And if we only talk to each other, it it doesn't do a service uh, to to our country or to the world. I think uh, we can help people understand why today is the way it is by helping them see those connections to the past. And in reality, if we don't do it. You know, those of us who, who really know this stuff and, are, and have spent our lives uh, learning it and, and thinking about it, uh, then other people will, uh, and they won't do as good a job. <laughs> you know, there, there are a lot of very good amateur historians out there, but there are a lot of people who, who study history very shallowly and, and don't have the depth of understanding uh, that, that we could share. Um, so I, I just think it's really important for for historians to engage with the public and and help the public understand. Because people love history, right? You talk to people and they're like, oh, I hated history in high school. I hated but look at your show. I mean, it's so popular because people really do love history. They just don't like the way they've been talked to about history in the past. Um, and so I think as professional historians, we need to engage with the public and, and help them see that they really do love history, and history really is important uh, to understanding the world around them each and every day. So I 100% agree with Kate's statement that a lot of people think they don't like history, but they really just don't like the way that history has been presented to them. That completely mirrors my experience with K-12 through yeah, I uh, we've talked about this a lot, but I'll say it again. I think when you're doing the, here's a date, remember it. Here's a date, remember it. 
even when they get into like the mechanics of what caused things, it's usually pretty dry. But if you actually dig in and see all of the influences that are going into what creates those moments and those dates, then it gets a lot juicier and more interesting and you find yourself really engaged. Yeah. I I wish that there was a setup in education that that could happen more regularly. Well, and I also, to be fair, I know there are people who do love the the names and the dates and like the the rote memorization that a lot of it is involved with. Like I know someone who is a forensic accountant who loves spreadsheets and numbers in a way that I simply do not. But uh, it would be cool if history could, you know, school be taught through both of those approaches for the people who needed to learn them in both of those two different ways. Well, and I think for the people that do love the the memorization part and the dates and the names. For them, and I'm just speaking extemporaneously, so I could be completely off base, but I think those people have this innate ability at pattern recognition where they're able to kind of tease out that juicy cause and effect stuff from looking at all of those dates and places and names that is maybe not always immediately apparent to other people. And that's part of how they get engaged. It's like a puzzle game almost. Yeah. I think you and I are maybe more big picture recognition people (laughs) than the, like, extrapolate the big picture from a list of names and dates. Unless it involves Star Wars. And then I like all the memorization of (laughs) names and dates. (laughs) But anyway. Yeah. To get back to get back to the wasp. Kate also referenced a rose parade float. This actually happened in 2014. And the float was called Our Eyes Are on the Stars. It won a national trophy award. And it was created to both honor and celebrate the wasp and to try to educate people about their contributions to World War II and to women in aviation and the armed forces and their legacy today. So it was basically like a work of public history to try to honor and honor people and educate people as well. Eight surviving wasp rode on the float. Fourteen people walked along with it, including many women from the United States Armed Forces who had been inspired by the wasp and their story. So in our show notes for the episode, we will include links to some pictures, some more about this float. It really is pretty astounding to look at. It's beautiful. Uh, also in the show notes is going to be a link to the National Wasp World War II Museum in Sweetwater, Texas, and to the official archive of the Wasp, which is housed at Texas Women's University. Jacqueline Cochran's name came up a few times in these two podcasts, and you can find more about her in the episode Four Flights of Female Aviators, which we will also link to in our show notes. And I want to just thank Kate again so much for agreeing to be on the show, for giving us so much marvelous information. Uh, there were things that I asked her that I sort of already knew the answers to, but then there were so many things that uh, her answers included nuances and details that not only had not occurred to me, but they had not been present in any of the work that I had read and reviewed and watched to prepare for this interview. So thank you. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Kate. Do you have some listener mail to finish this one out with? I do. And this is from Wendy. And Wendy says, I just want to thank you for covering the Vanport flood. We bought a house in the Kenton neighborhood of Portland and Vanport, Vanport would have been our neighbor to the north. Kenton's located in the historic Albina Red Line. I've obviously heard of the flood. However, I never connected the dots about the racial undertones that led up to it, including the whipping laws and black ban written into the Oregon Constitution. I've shared your podcast with my friends on Facebook and neighbors on next door. Many have been surprised and intrigued to learn these details about Oregon. As a white resident of a historically non-slave state, I grew up feeling pride about my state because we were never a slave state. 
I'm so glad as an adult, I have the opportunity to understand and learn more about the history of my state. You're right when you say it's not just an in the South thing. The road into my Southern Oregon hometown even had a, quote, street patrolled by vigilantes for justice into the early 2000s. Thanks again for opening our eyes a little more every week. I love your podcast, Wendy. Oh, and then coincidentally, Wendy talked about having to uh, having listened to the podcast uh, while in the yard removing river rocks from the dirt. And so you can still see that this area was once a floodplain before they, you know, walled off the water to let people build stuff there. Thank you so much for writing, Wendy. I wanted to read this for a couple uh, reasons. One is that I am glad that this experience on Nextdoor posting the podcast was, it seems like it came off pretty positive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have not had that experience in some of my Nextdoor conversations uh, about things that are uh, related to racism in some way. And the other thing uh, that I wanted to, to, that made me want to read this letter is that Wendy talks about, um, about having felt pride that Oregon was never a slave state, but sort of realizing that a lot of things that went on that weren't in the South. This is something that we've been talking about on the podcast lately, pretty much on purpose. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're, uh, we have, I have some upcoming episodes in the, in the pipeline that are going to revisit the same territory because uh, I think the, lo- the way a lot of people learn about slavery in the United States and a lot of ways that people learn about the Civil War is really oversimplified. And there's a sort of idea that the Northern states were the good guys because they had stopped allowing slavery and the Southern states were the bad guys because they had to be forced to stop allowing slavery at gunpoint, basically. But that's not... It, that gloss is over. <laughs> uh, a lot of Northern history and a lot of history from other parts of the United States where, y- y- sure, slavery had been abolished par- prior to the Civil War, uh, but a lot of those places had allowed slavery previously, and a lot of them still were doing things that were not okay in terms of the treatment of their own citizens. So um, that's definitely something that we have tried to address on the podcast to give people a richer understanding and a more complete understanding of, like, how you you don't get to say that the North was blameless just because the North had already abolished slavery before the Civil War started. Like, that's pretty low bar <laughs> for uh yeah, injustice. I I think there is sort of sometimes a, a false perception that there was never slavery in the North. No, that's false. And, and it's like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no. Uh, which gets into some problems and people get kind of uh, a, a little bit twitchy about it. Like they feel somehow that they're being blamed a little bit. Yeah. But we're just trying to ex- examine all of this. Because yeah. it's, it's only in really looking at the facts of how the past unfurled that we're really going to have the clear picture. And if it's right. icky to look at, there's probably even more reason that we should be taking a gander. I agree with you. Yeah. So uh, thank you again, Kate, for talking to me uh, on this podcast and for sharing so much wonderful, wonderful information. Thanks to Wendy for writing that wonderful email 
If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you come to our parent company website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, we have all kinds of information about aircraft and airplanes and military aircraft, all kinds of aviation history, lots of stuff at our, at our parent company's website. Also at our website, we will have show notes. For all of our podcasts, we will have lots of cool links to stuff about the Wasp. You can have more information about about Dr. Landex's work. Lots of cool stuff that we will have linked from there. We also have an archive of all of our old episodes on our website. So you can learn all kinds of stuff at our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, or our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 